Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, October 20th, 2022. I am so excited to be with you tonight for a new year, 5783, a new cycle of Torah learning, hopefully new insights, maybe a few old ones reviewed once in a while. I'm so grateful to every one of you for joining, for setting aside this time that we can spend together studying, and I tremendously look forward to the Torah that, with God's help, we'll be able to study together in the course of the coming year. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. So the simple way to read the beginning of the Torah is, in the beginning... God created heaven and earth. And then there is a serial listing of what comes next. There's first, there's second, there's third. First is heaven and earth. Then second, there's third. What was created on the first day? What was created on the second day? What was created on the third day? Ending with what was created on the sixth day, the last thing that was created on the sixth day, Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve. And it is a serial consecutive listing. But the Ramban asks, there's a problem with that reading. Because that, if that is true, the word beratious in the beginning is not the right word. It should have said berishona first. If you're giving a list of consecutive items, there's first, second, third, etc., Berishona, that would mean first was this, then comes that, then comes this. Beratious means in the beginning. Now, the beginning is not followed by second. The beginning is followed by the middle. It's followed by later, not second. So the Ramban explains, Beratious bara in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. That is, I'm using modern words to describe what the Ramban says. That's what we would call today the Big Bang. One sudden, single moment before which there was nothing, after which there was everything designed and willed by God. That's beratious barolakim esa shemayim yesarets. But the Ramban says the substance of what God created at that moment was not a finished world as we know it. Rather, God created what the Ramban calls koach hiluli. I would translate that as primordial matter. Now, the way I understand this in my own mind, in my own limited, very limited mind, I understand this to be atomic particles, protons, neutrons, electrons. Of course, the entire natural world is made up of those substances just combined in different numbers in different ways. So that was the one moment in the beginning, everything is made. <clears throat> and then God manipulated the particles 
into different combinations in different ways, different numbers, to evolve into water and plants and animals and finally into humans. The Ramban says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Baruch God created everything from definitive nothing, ex nihilo, he created something out of nothing. But what God created in that initial moment was potential. It is material, matter, that has the potential to be developed, to evolve into various forms. To transform, to evolve from the potential to the actual. Now, but it was only that first act of creation, that initial creation of matter, the Greeks call it hiuli, after Bereshis Baruch Lekim Eisah there's no more creation by God. It's one instant of creation, one act of creation. Everything after that is God taking what He had already already created in potential and evolving it, forming it, fashioning it into the different objects of the entire natural world. Kimimenu Himsi Hakol from that initial act of creating matter, God brings about everything, and he clothes them in forms and fixes them. So what we have at the beginning of Bereshit is not a sequence. It's one Pasuk that describes the first moment, that's creation, and then everything after that is the subsequent, not creation, but evolution of what God initially created into the final forms that we see today. It's fascinating. To me, the Ramban, writing in the 13th century, is describing an evolutionary process of creation, but of course began ex nihilo at one moment by God, with God's design. Okay, so it's interesting to me that according to the Ramban, the Torah's account of creation matches a certain version of the theory of evolution which was developed centuries later. Okay, but the Torah is not a work of science and the Torah is not trying to teach us science. So the question we need to ask is, what spiritual lesson do we learn from this evolutionary process of creation? Allow me to share with you the insight of Rabbi Yaakov Neuberger. Rabbi Neuberger suggests, based on other writings of the Ramban, that God cre revealed 
as a dominant feature of creation, Yitziah mikoach el hapoel, to be able to, to take something that exists in potential and bring it into its full potential, right? That's what the Ramban is describing God doing. That is, everything is created in potential, just the matter, and then God fashions it and brings it into its potential. That Big Bang moment delivered a world that was entirely present in the potential, but without further crafting and shaping, that world would be absolutely meaningless. It had to evolve into the magnificent and majestic natural world. And at the same time, it was all there already. And this, says Rabbi Neuberger, presages the spiritual life and growth of every one of us. Our sages tell us, for example, that Avram, our patriarch Abraham, was faced with Eser Nisyonos, ten tests, ten challenges. For example, the tenth and the most challenging is the passage that we're going to read about in a few weeks, the Akedah, Akedah Yitzchak, where God is, commands Avram to offer his son Yitzchak as an offering. And that narrative opens with the following words, Vohelokim Nisa es Avraham. God tested Avraham. What are these tests? What are the nature of these tests? What is the purpose of these tests? The Ramban writes that spiritual life is catapulted by nisyonos, by tests, by challenges. Because they are intended to force us to draw on strengths and blessings that we have. They are ours, but they are so far unrealized. They are potential, but since they've never been called upon, those strengths are only potential, they have not been actualized. So there will come along a test that will require us to draw on a certain strength or ability or fortitude that we have, but we've never acted upon it, so we've never called it forth. And now this test requires us to actualize it, to bring it to its actual state. We grow primarily by looking inside, identifying our gifts and challenging ourselves to test them. We advance spiritually by building with confidence on the tested and now recognized powers. The powers that we have can exist in potential, but until they're tested, we never bring them to the light of day. Appreciating personal potential is the core and mandate of our spiritual growth and accomplishment. And therefore, the opening Pasuk of the Torah, which introduces us to God's process, evolutionary process of taking the potential and bringing it to the actual, this is the process which will guide us through our lives, by which in our own lives we will grow, 
Every one of us is tested in life multiple times and in different ways. This process of having us rise to the occasion, find the strength or resolve within us that we did not even yet know that we had, that's the process by which God helps us create ourselves just as God creates everything else. Jody Picot wrote, Who we are isn't so much about what we do, but rather what we're capable of when we least expect it. God creates the world in this way in order to teach us what we should expect in life and how to make use of everything that happens to us. <coughs> There's a striking passage in the Talmud, Masechta Gitin. The Talmud says, Hane'elavin ve'enen olvim, those who allow themselves to be shamed without shaming back. Shomin cherpasen ve'emashivin, those who hear themselves being insulted and do not respond, those people are praised. And their praise, says the Talmud, using the words of the prophet in the book of Shoftim, the book of Judges, actually the words that were sung by the prophetess Devorah. Alava Kasav Omer, concerning such a person, God praises them and says, And those who love God in this way go forth like the sun in its strength. <coughs> okay, well, it's a good thing if you're shamed not to shame back, and it's a good thing if you're insulted not to respond. Doing so can stop arguments from continuing and being exacerbated, can minimize animosity, but what's the connection to the sun? What's the connection? Why should a person who doesn't respond to an insult and God wants to praise them to saying they're like the sun? What's the connection to the sun? So let's look for a moment at the creation of the sun in our Parsha. God made two big lights in the sky. The big light <coughs> that dominates during the day, the sun. And the little light that dominates at night, that's the moon. Okay. God creates, God makes the sun and the moon. There's a 
contradiction, an internal contradiction in this verse. Listen one more time carefully. First, the Pasuk says, <coughs> excuse me. First, the Pasuk says, God made two big lights. Two of them, and they're both big. And then, the next words are, the big one rules during the day, and the little one rules at night. Well, if God created two big ones, how could there be a big one and a little one? Rashi gives the famous answer. Rashi says, Shavim Nivru. Both the sun and the moon were created of equal size. Imagine that. Can you imagine if the moon at night was as bright as the sun during the day? I mean, I can't imagine. But they were created equal in size. Vinismata But the moon got reduced. It got minimized in size. Why? Al-Shikitraga, because the moon complained. Va'amra, and the moon said to God, you made a sun and a moon, we're both the same size. It's impossible for two kings to share one crown. You can't have two the same size. It's got to be one bigger and one smaller. Of course, the intention of the moon was that the sun should get minimized so that the moon would be the king, would remain the biggest. God responded to the moon by minimizing the moon. So now you have the moon that was started out as big as the sun, but now got minimized, and now it's smaller. <coughs> okay. <coughs> Please listen to this fascinating insight by one of the medieval commentators, the Bali, the Dasakadim. The moon was reduced in size. The sun stayed the same size. Why? Because the sun did not respond to the insult of the moon. The moon was insulting the sun. The moon was shaming the sun. I can't have another being as great as me. The moon wanted for the sun to be made smaller. Now, the sun could have responded. The sun could have said, what do you mean I should be smaller? You should be smaller. And they could have fought back and forth. You could be smaller. No, you should be smaller. The sun was insulted. It was shamed. But the sun did not respond. And that is what Devorah is referring to in her words of song when she says, those who love God in this way by not responding when they're insulted or shamed, they're like the sun in its strength. The sun has its strength greater than that of the moon because it did not respond to the taunt of the moon. This is our definition of gavura, of heroism. <coughs> In the wider world, if you ask someone 
who is a hero. Often, people will point to a person who has a lot of muscles, who is physically very, very strong. The concept of heroism in Jewish thought is quite different. Famous Mishnah in Perkiyava says, Ezehu Gibor, who is the strong hero? Hakovesh Yitro, the one who is able to control his inclination. To be able to control oneself, to hold something back, not always to need to respond to an insult or a provocation or a taunt. That requires true strength. Some people, it's like it's automatic. It's almost like you can control them. Just say something. It's like waving a red flag. And they cannot stop themselves. They cannot edit themselves from responding in kind. Gvura, real heroism, real strength, is the ability to overcome one's natural instinct, to be able to hold back. And the first manifestation of Gvura in the history of the world was the sun's non-response to the insult of the moon. There's a cartoon that I love. <laughs> and often I share it and people don't get it, which is okay. It's dry. It's droll. <laughs> but I just love it. So the cartoon is a husband and wife. They're in the bedroom. The wife is in bed. The husband is sitting at a desk in front of a computer. <coughs> so the wife says to the husband, come to bed. And the husband says to his wife, not yet. There's something wrong on the internet. You don't have to respond to everything that is wrong on the internet. It is not your responsibility to correct every single problem. People can say crazy, stupid, silly things. You don't have to respond. And this is such an important lesson in so many areas of life. We hear insults and we hear provocations and we hear taunts. And we get shamed. Okay, yes, once in a while there's a principle at stake. Once in a while there's a lesson. Okay, fine. But 99.99% .99 of the time, here's the, here's the truth. You don't have to answer. Just let it go. Do you realize how different the world would be if people would just let stuff go? So what if that person called me a, who cares? What does it matter? Let him say it. You don't have to respond to every comment. Be like the sun. Once in a while, just let it go. Just ignore it. And your life and the life of those around you will be improved enormously. I promise. <coughs> Let me share with you one last piece for tonight.
the Slanim Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Noach Berezovsky, wrote an important work on the Torah called Nitivo Shalom. <clears throat> and he writes at the very beginning of it something that is really an important introduction to the study of Torah, especially as we begin anew. He writes that every person needs to read the Torah as if it is written about me, about you and me right now. We don't read the Torah as history. We don't read and learn about what happened long ago. Yes, we do, but that's not all. We read the Torah and we learn the Torah as it is happening to us now. As we read this week about the creation of the universe and the creation of man, we too are being created anew. This Shabbos, Shabbos Bereshis, it sets the precedent for the whole year whose creation is occurring now and whose character is being formed now, not way, way in the past, right now. That's the way we should study every passage in the Torah. By asking ourselves, what do I learn about what is happening to me now? So with that in mind, which, by the way, is a marvelous introduction to the study of the Torah all the time. But with that in mind, why does the Torah tell us about Cain and Hevel, Cain and Abel, that Cain murders his brother Hevel? Hopefully, this is not literally our reality. What does this teach me about my life right now? The verses that introduce this horrible event are curiously cryptic. Listen carefully, please. Vayomer, Cain and Hevel are the two sons of Adam and Eve. Vayomer, Cain el Hevel achiv. Cain said to Hevel, his brother. Vayehi bihiyosem basoder, and it was when they were both in the field. Vayakam Cain el Hevel achiv vayahar gehu. Cain rose up and murdered his brother Hevel. Something's missing. Cain said to his brother, and they were both in the field, and Cain killed his brother. Cain said what to his brother? It's like the Torah is missing a few words. What did Cain say to his brother that presumably had the effect somehow of making Cain so angry that he killed, murdered his own brother? What did he say? The Torah doesn't tell us. <coughs> so our rabbis in the Midrash give three different explanations, three different opinions about what Cain said to Hevel. 
it was an argument of some kind, which led to Cain being angry and killing his brother Hevel. First opinion says, <coughs> excuse me, the first opinion says, the two brothers said to each other, listen, it's you and me. Let's divide up the world. One of us will take all the land and the other will take all the movable objects. Okay. So, the one who took the land said to the other one, you're standing on what belongs to me. Get off. The other one says, what you're wearing belongs to me. Take it off. One said, take off what you're wearing. The other said, fly up in the air. As a result, Cain killed his brother Hevel. That was the argument that led to the murder. Second opinion. The argument was about where in the future the Beis Hamikdash, the holy temple, would be built. They had divided the land equally. They each had half the world. Half the world is a pretty big share, but sometime in the future, the base of Midrash, the holy temple, is going to be built. In whose portion will it be? Cain says it should be in my portion. Hevel says it should be in my portion. And they came to blows, an argument, and Cain killed Hevel. It's a second opinion. Third opinion, <coughs> I mean, you do realize if Adam and Eve had two sons and there's anybody left, there's going to have to be some stuff going on that we don't want in primetime TV. So this opinion says, Cain was the firstborn, Hevel was the secondborn, but Hevel, when he was born, he had a twin sister. Cain said, I will marry this sister because I'm the firstborn. Hevel said, no, I will marry the sister because she and I were born together. Let's leave aside the logic of that for a moment. But that was the argument. And in the anger of that argument, Cain killed Hevel. Rabbi Yudha Amital points out, if you look at these three opinions, the first one is an argument about power. What you have belongs to me? No, what you have belongs to me. I want more power. To this day, rulers and people who already have all that they need continue to struggle and wage war for power and control. We see it today. The second opinion, they were arguing about religion. Where would the temple be built? Here too, we have first-hand experience today of wars that break out, killing that happens as a result of religious zealotry and conflicts over faith. The third opinion is jealousy. And we are certainly familiar with the terrible violence that takes place as a result of jealousy. What am I supposed to learn from this? Rabbi Yudha Amital explains these sources of strife have been with us literally since the dawn of mankind. And that means the fact that they are still with us, that we must exercise continual, 
perpetual vigilance to avoid sinking into these kinds of conflict. We read this parsha to be reminded how destructive arguments in these areas especially, and other areas also, but in these particularly, how destructive and violent and deadly arguments in these areas can become. And we have to constantly remind ourselves to guard against allowing that to develop. William Faulkner famously wrote, the past is never dead. It's not even past. Only by keeping it alive can we hope not to repeat it. My friends, I want to, <coughs> I want to wish you a great night and a wonderful Shabbos filled with lots of hot tea and honey. And I look forward to seeing you soon in person.